1824, young women and girls working 15 hours a day in Portucket, Rhode Island textile mills shocked their bosses by organizing the first factory strike in US history. They walked out of the factories and into the streets, hurled abuse at the bosses, attacked working mills, and won improvements to their conditions. This is working class history. Today we are very happy to be joined by Joey De Francesco, a public historian and musician based in what is now known as Providence, Rhode Island, but was traditionally Narragansett land. Joey has done some great work researching a strike which is little known, but of huge historical significance, as not only was it the first strike in the US organised by women, uh, but it was the first strike of wage workers at a factory in the country. We'd never even heard of it until Daniel Denvir from The Dig Podcast contacted us on Twitter and let us know about Joey's work. Long-term listeners of our podcast will know that our recent episodes have generally been in a narrative format, um, but our discussion with Joey we thought worked a bit better as an interview Q&A, like most of our earlier episodes. So the format today is a little different from most of our recent episodes, uh, but anyway, we hope you enjoy it. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. To start off, Joey explains the significance of the strike. All right, so the Pawtucket strike in 1824 was the first factory strike in the United States, and it was the first strike of any kind in this country that was led by women. Um, So this was in many ways the beginning of the U.S. labor movement um, and set off waves of strikes and textile factories uh, throughout the area um, and ultimately the country. I think despite, you know, that that's obviously a really significant milestone, um, but this dispute is not well known at all. You know, it's kind of what I spend all my time doing, and, and I hadn't heard about it until very recently. Why do you think it is so, so little known? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons. I think um, women are often cut out of labor history, and 
even today, you know, when you say working class, our imagination, uh, the public imagination often goes to largely the white male workers. But we, of course, know that that's not actually who makes up most of the working class. And that has always been the case. And so these first textile strikes, both in Pawtucket in uh, the 1820s and then uh, the next decade in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and in Lowell, um, were also led by largely young women workers. Um, but I think subsequently, labor organization that formed definitely focused in more on male workers and creating a very masculine uh, idea of the working class, and that's unfortunately what historians, even within the labor movement, have focused on. And so this really important part of our history has unfortunately been cut out. And even at the museum itself in, in Pawtucket, where, where I work at, um, it really wasn't discussed too much before I came in and started doing this research and started doing this programming. And so this is very much history. We kind of have to fight to get out there. So this story, how did you first find out about it? Right. So I started working at the Slater Mill Museum in Pawtucket coming from a labor organizing background, right? I had worked organizing a union in, in a hotel in Providence for some years and it's kind of coming to the museum and so had that mindset of wanting to look at people's history and working people's history in these textile mills. And some of that was upfront and obvious, right? We talked about child labor in the mills, sort of the dangers of these factories. Um, but a lot of the history was very much focused on kind of this like great men history, talking about Samuel Slater, who was the entrepreneur who founded the factory, um, and Moses Brown, who was this merchant who financed the factory, and kind of this ideology of progress coming in from the early Industrial Revolution, working people's stories cut out. So started doing more and more research um, and found just a couple of academic articles really that mentioned this strike, mostly by a guy named Gary Kulik. Um, who talked about this strike and just reading those articles and being like, oh, my God, this is the first factory strike in the U.S. And we're not even talking about it where it happened. You know, there's really clear political ideological reasons why someone might cut out this stuff if you're trying to tell a certain story of um, the early Industrial Revolution. And that was clearly what was happening. So upon discovering it, I started doing more research and developing specific labor history programs to talk about this strike and to talk about the issues that led up to the strike and um, in the immediate aftermath, because it's obviously a very important uh, piece of our history as a country and specifically our labor history. In terms of it, it being the first, has that sort of been established by a, do you know, a particular sort of study or could it be possible that the other stuff happened that just wasn't written, hasn't been recorded or... Yeah, no, it's it's certainly possible. And, you know, when you're looking at history from this time period, we're going off of pretty small amounts of sources. So you're looking at a, a few newspapers from the time that were reporting on the strike and then diaries, really, and letters from the mill owners and their class. Unfortunately, we have very few documents from the workers themselves um, from this time period. So certainly it's possible in the preceding 30 years from when these factories start popping up in the U.S. in 1793 that there were some strikes. And in fact, you know, even with the resources I have, there's certain situations you could call strikes, like parents pulling out, you know, five to ten children out of the factory at a time to force a wage settlement. For instance, where you do have workers, in this case, you know, child workers withholding labor to 
you know, get something from management. So you have those sorts of situations. And you also have, you know, before this, I say it's the first factory strike because you had groups of artisans, for example, you know, cobblers who would strike um, even before industrialization. But um, from everything I've read in terms of just factories, this appears to be the the clearest strike of, you know, a substantial amount of people. You know, you have hundreds of people participating in this um, to withhold their labor to, you know, extract concessions from management. What was the general situation like in the in the mills in that area kind of before the dispute happened and what were the conditions like for workers? And Right. So factories first started popping up in the U.S. in 1793 in the same city in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is in northern Rhode Island, just north of Providence. Um, the first of which was built in 1793 by a guy named Sam Slater, who was a British immigrant who grew up in the UK surrounded by the Industrial Revolution that had already been going on there for a couple of decades. So he was apprenticing under a guy named Jedediah Strutt, who was already this you know famous wealthy industrialist, um, and was learning how to both create this machinery but also create the kind of uh, social conditions required for industrialization. So he reaches adulthood and decides he's going to come to the U.S. And so he does this, you know, bringing with him all these ideas for the machinery, but also for, uh, you know, all of the social conditions uh, required to create uh, industrial workers and an industrial society. So he eventually makes his way to Rhode Island, um, gets financing from a guy named Moses Brown, who was this very wealthy merchant who had made all this money in the West Indian trade and the slave trade, various other sources. Um, They start the first factory in Pawtucket in 1793. Initially, it was entirely children workers. So Slater started with what we called pauper apprentices who were um, orphans or people taken by the state from families that were considered to be itinerant and dependent and put in the employ of some artisan and farmer pre-industrially. Now Slater is adopting the system um, that they had already been using in the UK to put these kids to work in factories. Um, So these kids were working for free in exchange um, for board and food but still had to work 12, 13, 14 hours a day in the factories. Slater found these was actually too expensive to be housing and feeding these pauper apprentices, so he quickly just changed over to um, other young children. So for the first uh, decades of these factories, really to the 1820s, we're talking about mostly young kids, like 7 to 13-year-old kids worked in these factories for very low wages, maybe making 30 to 60 cents per week to work these 12 to 15-hour days. Um, these are, of course, very dangerous factories, all these things you associate with the early Industrial Revolution, right? Accidents are very common. Uh, Fires are common. These are literally toxic environments with the cotton dust flying around. Um, These kids are protesting from the beginning, largely by leaving, right? Lots of these kids run away. In some cases, parents are taking kids out of these factories. Um, For instance, when Sam Slater first lit candles, in the factories to force the kids to work at nighttime, which was a violation of pre-industrial you know, norms around work. You wouldn't really work at nighttime pre-industrially. Um, the parents were so upset about this that a number of them pulled their kids out of the factory. And really for these first few decades, it was extremely rare for workers to remain in one factory for more than a year at a time, really even for more than a few months at a time. 
Um, so you already have this kind of individualized protest going on against management. Um, as the years go on, you start to see more inten- intensified individual protests. There's quite a number of arsons um, going on in the factories. You see theft of cotton and cloth increase. Um, workers leaving, fleeing um, continues to go on. Communities are even fighting these mills in many cases. For example, when Slater first um, built the factory, you have to build a dam to provide the water power to the factory. When he was constructing the dam, residents in Pawtucket attacked the dam and dismantled it um, in a really kind of early act of industrial sabotage, maybe the first one in the U.S. And you see workers and community members throughout New England attacking dams as these mills are being built. So by the 1820s, things begin to change, really with the introduction of the power loom. So previous to 1820 in these textile mills, all they were creating was thread. So they were spinning cotton into thread. That thread was then given to kind of a system of outworkers who would then by hand weave that thread into cloth, sell that back to the factory and the merchants who would then sell that. In the 1820s, though, you start to, in a big way, introduce power looms, which use water power to automatically weave cloth. So these were first introduced in the U.S. in 1813 in Lowell, then start to get adapted in Rhode Island in the 1816s, but big way, 1820s. So when this happens, we go from having children be the biggest part of the workforce to um, still a substantial but a much smaller part of the workforce. So from about 1820 to 1830, kids go from being 70 to 80 percent of the factory workforce to around 30 percent. And most of that change is made up of young women who begin to enter the workforce to staff these power looms, which are a bit too complicated and fast for really young kids to operate. So young women um, in the milliner's mind were the next or cheapest, most exploitable source of labor. So you start to get these young women coming into the factories in big ways, but mill owners are still, of course, treating them like young kids, paying them, you know, half to a third as much as the men who are in there um, and exploiting them in these ways. Um, So that's kind of where we stand in 1820, right before the strike begins. Cool. Uh, Thanks. That's a really helpful overview. Um, I guess I'd like to ask something about the slave trade, because I think a lot of people talk about the slave trade, even saw people on the left talk about the slave trade as if it was something that kind of predated capitalism and was kind of a you know a pre-capitalist thing, which was then sort of superseded. But, you know, in, in places like the UK, obviously, slave owners were compensated for the loss of their slaves when it was when it was made illegal. And so these slave owners were given huge injections of public cash, which they then used to start businesses, which really kind of fueled the Industrial Revolution there. And you've already kind of mentioned that, you know, part of this factory was originally set up with, you know, money derived from slavery. Um, so maybe could you say something else about the relationship between slavery and the the industry? Yeah, there's a deep, deep relationship between the rise of industrial capitalism in the US and slavery and the slave trade um, coming from a few points. So Firstly, just the capital that went into industrialization is largely coming directly from the slave trade and then also from merchants making enormous amounts of money in the northeast U.S. um, from the West Indian trade, which was largely New England merchants uh, creating goods in the north and then trading them to 
uh, largely sugar plantations, which were, you know, these massive slave plantations in the West Indies and accumulating wealth that way. So just in this case, Moses Brown, who is the namesake of Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, um, gained his fortune somewhat directly through the slave trade. He did later become an abolitionist, but um, helped finance uh, um, some slave voyages and also through this trade in the West Indies. So a lot of his capital, which was then gone into these factories, is directly coming from the slave trade. This was also true of other Rhode Island capitalists. Um, So, for example, James DeWolf was one of the biggest, most infamous Rhode Island slave traders, Um, also started the Arkwright Manufacturing Company in Rhode Island using his capital from the slave trade. Um, You also have the Hazard family in southern Rhode Island who um, were big slave owners, actually ran slave plantations in southern Rhode Island, some of the biggest slave plantations in the northern U.S., um, largely during the the, um, pre-revolution era, use a lot of that capital to start the Peacedale Manufacturing Company in Rhode Island. So a lot of the initial capital starting these places coming directly from the business around slavery. And then the factories themselves get even more deeply involved in that because they're making cotton thread. That cotton is coming from the southern U.S., right? This is the demand side of the cotton economy. Okay, so 1793, when the first factory is open in Rhode Island, is incidentally the same year that Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin. Um, So the combination of the demand suddenly created by these northern factories and the invention of the cotton gin and, of course, many other factors results in a really rapid, dramatic uh, increase in slavery because all of a sudden slavery, the plantation economy, is so much more valuable than it was immediately post-revolution because now there's this staple crop that can be grown um, down south in the U.S. that there's a huge demand for both in the U.S. and in the U.K. and other factories in Europe. So as industrialization is developing – In the northern U.S., you see a simultaneous massive growth of slavery where it is already in South Carolina, in Georgia, and then the, you know, dramatic expanse of slavery further west. And it gets more and more dense and continues to grow to fuel the northern factory economy right up until the Civil War. So especially in the north, we have this kind of fantasy that slavery was something that built the southern economy. But in fact, this was one big integrated cotton economy. And in Rhode Island, you get this extra piece where a lot of these factories became specialized in what was at the time called uh, Negro cloth, which was cheaply made clothing specifically designed to clothe enslaved people on these plantations down south. Um, So a lot of the stats say some 80% actually of these textile mills in Rhode Island came to participate in this trade somehow, um, particularly that Peacedale Manufacturing Company in southern Rhode Island that was itself built with slave trade money. So you have this cycle going on where you have cotton coming from down south, being bought by these northern factories, being made into cheap cloth in Rhode Island, and then being sold back to slave plantations to clothe enslaved people there. So there's really deep, deep... Uh, intimate connections between all of these things going on. Yeah, that much is clear. Um, What were the sort of demographics like, you know, especially in terms of, uh, you know, immigrant groups? Mm -hmm. So at this point, most of the workers in these textile mills were white American-born workers, um, people of color, 
of whom there were a significant number in Rhode Island were systemically barred from um, the textile industry. And we hadn't quite gotten the waves of immigration um, that are going to come in you know, subsequent decades into the mills. So these are largely people from the surrounding towns who were recruited by the mills directly in some cases or who, again, had no other economic options and so were migrating um, into these industrial centers to work. In coming decades, you get bigger waves of uh, Irish and French-Canadian immigrants are the first two big groups to come into Rhode Island factories in big numbers. Um, but at this time, it's largely people from the surrounding areas. So um, what were the main kind of grievances of the workers that led to a strike? Right. So introduction of factories brought with it a, a total transformation in just how people worked within a generation or two. So these were largely people in these early factories who were farmers, um, maybe small artisans around Pawtucket, um, who were then, because of like an encroaching market economy, because of a dwindling you know, land quality or just loss of land, are now being forced into this market factory economy. And they're going from, for example, you know, spinning and weaving their own clothes on perhaps their own tools at home to within a generation going into a factory where they don't own the machine anymore. They don't own the thing that they're producing anymore. They don't own their own schedule um, to produce that thing. So the entire relationship to work has entirely changed. There's already just this anger and distrust of these mills. And you see this word tyranny always popping up in um, both from community members and workers in this time being subjected to the tyranny of these mill owners. So there's that overriding change in work. And then there's these things like, you know, just really long hours. Um, certainly in an agricultural environment, people would work long hours some parts of the year, planting, harvesting season. But now you're working in a mill the same 13 to 15 hours every single day of the year, according to the bell. Um, you have overseers watching your every movement. So the structure of work and the time is a big thing happening here. And then you have wages, which were ultimately the tipping point here. Um, wages were pretty low even by the standards of the time. Um, the best evidence of that is that, again, workers were just constantly moving between jobs trying to find the better wage in the area and that workers would simply leave the factories if they had any other options, right? This was not where anybody really wanted to be unless they had to. And so in 1824, what happened that specifically set off the strike was that all of the mill owners in Pawtucket, so this wasn't just one or two mills, this was the mill owners in this city colluding as a class to set and fix wages. And they met in late May of 1824 in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and decided to extend the workday for all workers in the city by an hour, and then specifically to cut by 25% the wages of weavers. And not accidentally, all weavers were these young, mostly teenage women in the city. So this is what immediately set off the strike. And the very next day, the strike began. Is it is it clear from the evidence how the strike began? Yeah, so we do sadly not have documents from the workers themselves. We do have newspapers that are really owned by the employing class who are reporting on this. And so you get this very biased thing where they're being very uh, kind of, you know, 
putting down the workers and speaking in this very kind of paternalistic way. But you can read between the lines as to what's happening. And uh, the newspapers say that immediately when the mill owners passed down this notice about the wage cuts and the hour increase, um, 102 women walked off their job and had a meeting and were told that uh, the, quote, like, most talkative of the women was placed in a chair and they collectively decided to not return to work until their previous wages were restored. So you had this leadership of 102 women who all met um, and just decided the very next day to not return to work. And then the papers, the documents suggest that a lot of the community and other workers soon joined them. Um, I believe the phrase they used in this one article is said, many joined them who, quote, were not interested in the affair. So take that to mean probably community members who were upset about, you know, the mills taking over politically and economically their communities. And so by most guess, you know, we had a, probably at least a few hundred people involved, both workers, the women, um, but also men at this work, uh, these workplaces and the children all on strike together um, walking out of these factories. Do you know how the strike spread to other workplaces? Yeah, I, I can't say exactly, you know, like their communication strategies. These are relatively small places at the time. So, you know, it's still a small um, city, even though it was, this, you know, for the time a large industrial village. Um, seem to spread quickly between workers and between community members where, um, again, after the first day, most of the newspaper accounts and the millers' accounts say all of the mills in the city were shut down pretty quickly. And the strike began to grow and develop and become increasingly militant in its tactics. So at first, the mills are shut down. And then we start getting reports that um, what's described by these mill owner newspapers as a mob going off to the mill owner's mansion. So at this time period, the wealthy hadn't developed the pattern of kind of building their mansions far away from everyone. In most cases, these mill owners are building houses, uh, very decadent mansions, like directly overlooking these mills. So what's described is that the workers and community members, hundreds of them, marched over to the mill owner's houses and were yelling and insulting them all day. Um, on those same days, we have reports that windows in these mills were smashed and it continued to grow and accelerate and become more militant um, until after about a week, um, one of the mills was set on fire under mysterious circumstances. No one like publicly took credit, but it was pretty obvious what was going on. One of the mills was set fire and the day after this mill was set on fire, the mill owners kind of conceded and agreed to negotiations. Okay, I think maybe there's a lesson in there for, yeah. <laughs> for people in industrial disputes today, yeah. or maybe not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who knows? Um, right, so the employers presumably had never seen anything like this yeah. before. Um, so, But did they try any ways to, to, to fight back and bring the strike to an end earlier? From what we know, during the strike itself, there's no evidence of retaliation in the immediate by management. Afterwards, we see many things happen. Um, but during the strike, we don't have good evidence that um, there was any immediate fighting back. I think part of it was that this was just unprecedented, right? This had never happened. Slater, when he was in the UK working under Strutt, had seen massive, more violent strikes 
than what we were seeing here. But for the most part, these mill owners were really caught off guard and, as revealed by their statements later, really didn't think they were, this was going to happen, right? They have these statements saying, you know, um, women in the town are already making extravagant wages for, their, for being women um, and just expected, I think, people to, to just accept this. Um, and so I think we're very surprised at this coming and within a week, again, agreed to come to the negotiating table. Um, so this the strike had, you know, not complete success. They did workers and get everything they wanted, but was successful in a way that in a decade you don't see strikes being as successful because at that point, even a decade from now, millers had acquired more tools to uh, sort of more directly oppress and deal with these kinds of collective actions. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, that's another thing that I wanted to ask. So at that time in Rhode Island, how was law enforced? So this is a great question. Um, Law enforcement in these mill towns, which were sort of separated from the big urban centers, like from Providence, did not have formally established police forces. And actually the first ones that develop are requested by mill owners um, explicitly in reaction to labor action. So the first one that I'm aware of is in 1814, um, even a whole decade before the strike, mill owners in Pawtucket. Uh, petitioned the General Assembly of Rhode Island for the creation of a local police force um, because even at that point they were finding this new factory working class so disorderly, um, even just culturally, right? Uh, by most accounts, there was people sort of drinking. There was um, a freer sexual attitudes going on than um, these middle and upper class mill owners would have liked and they were trying to enforce – this Protestant morality and so establishing churches and moral societies and these sort of things. And part of that host of the moral machinery of the factory village was also the creation of police force in 1814. And then after the strike in 1824, just uh, literally in the immediate aftermath, um, the mill owners again petitioned the Rhode Island State General Assembly um, for the creation of a, a night watch police force to monitor the mills from, uh, I believe it was 9 p.m. until sunrise to watch out for more arson, sabotage, whatever they feared was going to happen. So in both cases in Pawtucket, you see the creation of the police was an explicit reaction to protecting the property interests of the mill-owning class. 
Yeah, which I think is something that often gets forgotten nowadays yeah. where we think the police have always been around. No, um, yeah. And, of course, that is not the case. Yeah, um, in the media coverage of the, um, of the dispute, can you see, you know, what you often see in disputes now that, you know, the media attempted to, you know, drum up fear or anger against the strikers? Yeah, definitely. There's not a ton of articles. These publications weren't coming out as frequently as now, of course. But for the most part, these were newspapers written by and representing the Millennium class. The next decade in the uh, 1830s, you get the first labor newspapers in the area, the New England Artisan, and uh, also the, the women in the Lowell Mills start some of the first publications run by women in the country. Um, they're also run by these textile mill workers. But at the time, there wasn't many worker organs publishing things. So they do, th- you know, they describe the strikers as mobs or, you know, disorderly assemblages of people and just make them seem, uh, you know, terrible. And reading it nowadays, it's almost comical because it seems like, you know, like the Monopoly man talking about workers or something. But that is how they're describing them at the time. So to understand what's going on. It's not that hard to read between the lines, but yeah, the the press is definitely against the working class in the city. And, you know, when the dispute ended, do you know what specifically were the terms of the settlement or roughly? And so sadly, we don't know exactly what they agreed upon. What we do know is the newspaper says they reached, there was a compromise reach between the employed and the employers is the specific phrase that they use, which for the time, is extraordinary because, again, strikes around this time, you read about them and they can be these heroic, well-organized things but are typically crushed by management and by the capitalists. So to have a strike, the first one, um, be even somewhat successful is a pretty extraordinary thing. And again, this is being led by really teenage women here in Pawtucket. And we also know that immediately after the mill owners felt the need to issue a public statement, which they released, again, the same group of mill owners who had cut wages initially, put out this very defensive public statement in which they really go to explain, you know, why they felt they had to cut wages. They again appeal to these kind of gender divisions and sort of suggest that these women were making even more money than unskilled men were, trying to kind of, uh, you know, instill that gender division among workers. And but really come off as kind of defensive, which again, for this time period, um, is, is, is unusual and speaks to the power of these workers and that they really caught these these capitalists off guard by this collective action and succeeded to some extent. And, you know, you can imagine that they would not have been happy by that, especially these people who back then probably would have literally been the sort of stereotypical capitalists, like top hat wearing people that look down on their employees, especially as they would have been mostly women and girls uh, who had, you know, beaten them. Um, did they try to subsequently, you know, take steps to penalise ringleaders and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's unclear if anyone was specifically targeted and fired in the immediate aftermath of the strike. What we do see is an immediate stepping up of means of control among the mill owners. So again, in the immediate aftermath of the strike, you get... Um, the creation of this nighttime police force 
in the city, you see an acceleration of these attempts at control worker through, again, the moral machinery. So in 1826, um, Pateka Miller has petitioned the state legislature to create a more extreme temperance law in the city. Um, to cut down on drinking, you see the you know increased creation of more churches and Sunday schools in the area. Shortly after the strike, uh, milliners start having these annual Fourth of July parades where they have all these banners celebrating industry and American industry and kind of tying it to um, a certain kind of patriotism. Um, you also see more kind of direct means of control like accelerating uh, rates being demanded of workers. Um, stiffer fines and punishments being instilled across the working class um, inside of these mills and just kind of a a clamping down um, within all of these factories. Again, we can't say specifically who was punished here, but it was certainly a trend at the time that workers could and would be blacklisted. Um, It was the trend for workers to really use their mobility against capitalists, to kind of move and negotiate better rates across factories. Capitalists, of course, responded by colluding, by having blacklists, by setting prices across factories. So everything becomes a bit more severe in terms of management inside of the factory and just social management outside of the factory after these collective actions begin. So from the workers' perspective... You know, unfortunately, like a lot of history about ordinary people, especially back then, was it's not recorded, it's not written down. Um, so you said none of the names of these people are known uh, or anything like that. But is there any evidence that there was efforts made to forge any kind of permanent organization or union from this? Yeah, so... In the immediate aftermath of the strike, you have all these efforts by management to clamp down on workers, but a lot of these actions continue, so... The strike was settled June 1st or June 2nd. Um, We have newspaper notices over the next month or so from mule spinners who were these more skilled, highly paid mail workers in the factory um, calling for a public meeting of mule workers, uh, mule spinner workers um, on Monday, July 5th. At noon, I believe. So they specifically called a meeting to organize mule spinners during a workday in the middle of the workday, effectively calling another strike. Sadly, don't have you know minutes or other recordings of what happened at that mule spinner meeting. Um, but certainly, the energy from this strike continued, and it's also good evidence that these women were able to, um, you know collaborate and have a sympathetic element and solidarity with male workers and that management's efforts, at least at this time, to kind of divide upon uh, gender lines were not successful um, as much as they hoped. You also see another mill was burned down by arson in this very same year. So, So these actions are continuing throughout the year. We don't see an immediate creation in this year of a more permanent workers' organization, but within the next decade, you have um, some of the first worker organs starting in New England. So you have the New England Association of Farmers, Mechanics, and Other Working Men is formed um, in this time period. The New England Artisan, the labor newspaper, is formed. Um, Some of the first women's labor organizations are formed in the 1830s up in Lowell. Um, So in the immediate, immediate aftermath, we don't see a more permanent labor organization form, but certainly 
Many of these workers uh, who were moving around a lot, who maybe even participated in the strike, likely went on to form some of these other organizations and take further actions. Why do you think it is that the contribution of women workers in, in struggle uh, and to the workers' movement is so often either forgotten, you know, ignored, or even deliberately kind of erased? Yeah, it's something you see going on even today where I think the mainstream image of a union member or of a working class person in the popular discourse is often a man and often a white man on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, Too often when you say working class, that's the image that's conjured up. But if you, of course, look at who's actually in the working class, it is mostly people of color, mostly women. If you look at who's actually leading the biggest strikes in the country right now, teacher strikes, grocery worker strikes, it's still mostly women, hotel workers, still mostly women in these roles. And that's really been the case since the first strike in the country in 1824. Um, And Part of it, I think, has been within the labor movement itself coming to get dominated, even in this time period, um, by men who sometimes erase, often erase the work of women and so erase the contributions of women to the labor movement. Some of these early worker organizations, particularly those very narrowly focused on um, artisans at the time, which were mostly, uh, if not entirely, male workers, you see in their uh, plans, in fact, the you know elimination of you know, child labor, which is good, but with that also the elimination of, of women in the workplace, um, which they very narrowly saw as you know, competing with men's labor. And so you know, women should get out of the workplace. And so even from the very beginning, you see these you know, macho strains within the labor movement that are just totally disregarding the work of women. And so it's a struggle both within the labor movement, I think, to get rid of that, but also within uh, history and within labor history to get rid of that. It's something we've found even Rhode Island. There's been a lot written about the more male-heavy labor movements in Rhode Island, like the Knights of Labor, um, some of the strikes in the 20th century. Um, But these periods of women taking the lead and really starting things in really heroic ways um, in the very, very early period are sadly just been cut out and we have to fight to get them back into the literature and back into the public consciousness. Something that struck me at this point in the conversation was Joey's mentioning of men opposing women even entering the workforce on the basis that uh, they said they brought down the wages of men. Um, And indeed, this is something which is true at various points for sections of the organised workers' movement. Um, And while today it's really clear that these unions and these men who said this were very much on the wrong side of history, because now we all acknowledge that difference between man and female workers is completely arbitrary and that playing us off against one another uh, weakens us all. But some in the workers' movement today make the same argument about people born on different sides of arbitrary lines drawn on a map and argue that people from different bits of the map shouldn't be allowed into our bit of the map because it'd bring our wages down. You know, but logically, this makes even less sense and ultimately helps the employers by dividing us up and making us fight amongst ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's still a a big problem that people have that, um, you know, very kind of nationalistic protectionist uh, view of how we're going to win in labor. Like, you know, we're, of course, not going to win anything by just putting up walls around 
our city or country or whatever and just saying, okay, this is better because now we don't have to compete with anybody else. It's never worked. It didn't work, uh, you know, in the early 19th century and it's not going to work now. I mean, in addition to being immoral and bad politics for so many other reasons, it's not an effective strategy for anyone. Yeah. And I think there's some other interesting parallels and, you know, things you describe about the time and the ways that workers resisted. So do you think there's parallels um, between that sort of struggle and similar ones that were going on in industrial England at that time and more contemporary ones going on um, in the garment industry in places like Bangladesh? Yeah, so there's obvious similarities between the struggles happening simultaneously in Europe, in the U.S. textile industry, things were behind by a couple decades. So I am not an expert on U.K. labor history, but from what I understand, you know, there was a certain radicalism and violence which exceeded what was going on in the U.S. Um, U.S. workers for at least this time period had some other outlets, right? Many became – could settle or, you know, do homesteading either by moving north or west, which is, you know, fraught with a whole different politics, which is a, goes into a different topic. Um, but because of this early resistance and because of some of the other economic outlets you didn't quite see, I feel like, is quite as much uh, violent struggle as you did maybe in the UK and elsewhere in Europe in the same um, time period, although you, you see some parallels with, uh, you know, the arson and the smashing factories and this sort of thing happening. Um, as for today, I think it's in some ways useful to, to think of these comparisons. Um, like when I work at the museum, um, I still often give tours to very young people, as young as, you know, fourth and fifth graders, so people who are the age of the children first working in these factories. And, you know, you pr you're presenting this information in a very different way when you're speaking to someone that age, but you can still kind of convey the horrors of working in these factories. And hopefully by the end of the tour, the kids are you like, you know, this is a bad thing that happened that kids had to work this way. But then you can make those connections that, hey, you know, there's kids your age, not much older than you, who are still having to perform this work in this same industry. Um, and there are important differences, of course, today. But I think thinking of the textile industry as this one connected uh, phenomenon between, you know, the late 18th century until today is useful because you can see how it started maybe in the UK and Europe, but it was in the northern US and then moved to the southern and southwestern United States searching for lower and lower wages, um, having this race to the bottom of the U.S., and then once capital could move even further, moving to then the global south, um, continuing to undercut wages and participating in the race to the bottom. So I think knowing that history is useful um, in terms of thinking about how we can combat this industry and like improve wages um, across the world within the textile industry. But then, of course, there's important differences, right? I mean, some of it was just the capital flight that we just talked about. Um, workers in the global south have to compete with these companies that are often foreign companies, U.S.-owned companies. And so you have these twin evils of, you know, this industrial capitalism and the factory system plus this uh, aspect of colonization going on where these companies and their allies and governments are working to undercut uh, – conditions and uh, regulations in the government and can also just move these factories um, wherever they want. Um, so what workers are dealing with in the global south is in many ways way more intense and exploitative than what workers had to deal with in 
the U.S. Um, in the early 19th century. I did want to revisit something which you mentioned that, you know, there was some type of resistance before this strike, which was people resisting essentially the imposition of factory life. Um, I think that's an important thing to realise, um, which again is another one of those things which we forget now that, you know, for us being working class, so for us needing to sell our labour power to live, um, just seems like the most normal thing in the world. It's like, yeah, I'm born, I go to school, and then I get a job. You know, I mean, you work making making rich people richer until you, if you're lucky, retire. If not, die. That's yeah. <laughs> right, what we do. That's what we do now. <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, but again, I think, you know, looking at things in history does sort of show us that that was not always the case. You know, this is a recent situation that has been foist upon us. Um, and when it was foist upon the, you know, people initially, they did resist it because it's, I mean, I think we can sort of feel it often on a Monday morning, <laughs> you know, that this is not natural, this is not how we're supposed to live. Um, but back then, people knew what it was like to live before that, you know, in other ways of making a living, in other ways of... Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, I think, part of why this history is so important, because I, I give these tours to people, and some people just, you know, come not knowing any of the history, and it's very surprising. You say, oh, this is the first textile factory in the U.S. in 1793. So it presents this thing as, oh, there was a time before industrial capitalism ran the world, which kind of opens the possibility there can be a time after it, right? So knowing that history can open up new possibilities for the future as well. Um, but you're you're right. Like uh, the, the conventional ideology imagines, you know, these factories first came down um, – you know, by these like merchant gods who gave us these factories and everyone was happy that they had jobs finally and, you know, they didn't just have to like sit around in the dirt anymore and now have jobs. <laughs> and it's very much the same imagination that a lot of people have for these factories moving to the global south, right? They, you know, say, oh, it's fine. Um, you know, this factory is moving to Bangladesh and putting people in these terrible, dangerous working conditions because, you know, what else were they doing or what else are they going to do? And that's it, – it's a similar ideology to how we imagine how factories emerge first. But – as we see, there was resistance from the very beginning. And we were talking about the dams and uh, community members dismantling the dams. That was before the factory was even built. That was 1792 that dam was built. So even before the first factory is there, people are resisting these factories. And then from the first year, people are leaving if they can. Right? There's these letters between Sam Slater and Moses Brown saying he can't keep half the spindles in motion in the factory because they just couldn't get people to work in the factory because you just didn't do it unless you had to. And when you could leave, you left. Um, so you see this resistance from the very beginning, people just leaving. You see things like during harvest times or when a particular berry is in season, the whole workforce would just leave um, and do that. So there's this, this big fight on management's part to kind of uh, – train workers out of these pre-industrial work habits where they would do whatever they want and like very much valued their time. Um, one of the symbols of this that you can still see in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, if you're driving up 95, is there's a clock um, on what was then the Congregational Church in Pawtucket. It's not the original one anymore. The church had burned down a couple times. So there's still this clock face, and that was erected in 1828 by workers themselves because with these early factories, mill owners would ring in and out workers using the mill bell, right? And before the mill bell, 
It's kind of the first alarm clock or something telling you you have to go to work at this time. Nobody really used clocks. Really, like merchants, wealthier people had clocks maintaining time on a strict schedule. The mill bells are the first time telling you, okay, you got to work this 15 hours a day and do it every single day of the year. And so this is bad on its own, right? Millers are taking a monopoly of the concept of time and even introducing a very new concept of time and imposing it on all these people. But they can manipulate that um, to however they liked, right? This still happens today. I know I've worked in restaurants, for example, where you get your paycheck at the end of the week and it says, oh, you know, you worked whatever, 33 and a half hours. And you're like, no, I worked an hour more than that. And you got to go back and forth and fight about it. Well, it was even easier for them to do that when nobody had a clock, nobody had any other access to the concept of time. So in 1828, an explicit reaction to this, workers and community members in Pawtucket raised what was a big sum at the time, $500, and had this big clock face erected in this church that was at the time one of the highest points um, in the town so people could monitor and kind of take back the monopoly over the new concept of time that mill owners had established. So, yeah, from the very beginning... People are fighting this stuff, and it gives us some sense that there can be a time after this stuff. Yeah, yeah no, completely. And that talk about time is another really important concept that is something that we all take for granted now. And it just seems like the most natural thing in the world, you know, just like wage labor and, and being ruled by the clock. So I think, it, yeah, it's good to think about these things, which are, this is recent history. It's not, you know... It's, it's not like really old or anything. It's pretty recent. And um, so many things which now are inconceivable to think of differently were completely different back then. Um, and so we, we've got to try and set that mentality to thinking about a post-capitalist world being a possibility because, you know, things can change in ways which we do find completely inconceivable right now. And that's a really excellent, you know, point and illustration of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just to give one more thing. I was just... Just reading an article because I was kind of going back through information to do this interview and was reading an article by a certain named Jonathan Prude who was studying mill villages around the same time period in Dudley, Massachusetts, which is nearby, much more isolated. And the point he was making was that this was actually a, a more docile workforce there. There were comparatively fewer strikes, fewer um, work disputes than in places like Pawtucket, which was this bigger industrial village. But even then, he says, uh, mill worker attendance at work was something around 70% in the best years. So this was the most docile, uh, kind of complacent workforce. It's only showing up to work 70% of the time, and that was much lower in some of these other factories, particularly in the early years. And you think about that, and you say, man, we've just ceded so much ground that we have to go to work more than 70% of the time, right? It's, like, funny to think about now, but that not that long ago, that was, like, as as much as management could expect, you know? But, yeah, you see, as we discussed, that the mill owners in 1824 were all colluding with each other, had created a union of the capitalist class already um, 30 years into this thing. Um, but there's letters even from 1824 within the first decade um, that I was looking at from Moses Brown to Sam Slater. So Moses Brown was, the, again, the investor in the first Slater factory, but then they kind of split ways and each started their own factories, which were in some ways in competition with each other. But the letter from Moses Brown to Sam Slater says, I think it's in you know all of our best interests if we stop competing for workers, if we stop competing for rates, um, et cetera. So in the, the first decade of industrial capitalism, the capitalist class is already figuring out uh, they, they're going to work in concert with each other, um, which, of course, 
they've continued to do till today, and we need to do the same thing back to them. But they figured this out very, very quickly that if workers can just play capitalists against each other, it's going to be in the workers' interest, yeah. The employers were very much taken by surprise with this strike, so they didn't really know how to deal with it. Now we're in a very different situation, as employers, uh, with the help of the state, have had nearly 200 years since to develop mechanisms to try to combat their workers, from police violence to blacklists to systems like Fordism and Taylorism to complex union laws which tie workers' hands behind our backs. You know, but we can still learn lessons from these past struggles and take inspiration from them, you know, to help us organise and fight in the present. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, we've got links to more info and further reading in the show notes. Like we said at the beginning, we just did this episode because someone happened to contact us about it. So have you taken part in a strike or a social movement? Or have you researched one or you know a lot about one that you'd like to talk about? If so, we want to hear from you. You don't have to be an academic or anything like that. You know, I'm certainly not. And we especially would like to hear more voices of women and people of colour. You know, so if you have a story to share, please get in touch with us. Just drop us an email on info at workingclasshistory.com. As always, thanks so much to our Patreon supporters who make this podcast and the WCH project possible. You can support us as well at patreon.com slash workingclasshistory, where you get benefits like exclusive early access to podcast episodes, bonus audio, access to our database of events, and more. If you can't spare the cash, that's totally fine. Please just give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app or share episodes you enjoy on social media or with friends and colleagues. For the latest updates from Working Class History, why not sign up to our email list? Just go to workingclasshistory.com and click sign up. This episode was edited by Jesse French. Theme music courtesy of Disky Dos Sole. Links to stream it or buy it in the show notes. Catch you next time. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. La libertad.